Trade Center fell on September 11th, 2001. Uh, All of you remember where you were that day. Uh, But there were some 3,000 people who died in those towers. But not everybody died. Uh, There were a select few who, who endured that tower falling, yet they survived under the rubble. There were two in particular named Will Jimeno and John McLaughlin who were Port Authority employees, and they were there to help. They had heard about the planes, and they came to the towers to help uh, with the chaos. And about that time in the South Tower, uh, it began to fall. Well, uh, these two men jumped inside an elevator shaft uh, to hide, to protect themselves, and miraculously they survived, but underneath dozens of feet of rubble. But under that rubble, they had no oxygen. Uh, They were breathing in uh, the smoky air, and virtually they had very little hope. But as that was happening with those two men, something was stirring in an accountant in Connecticut, a man named Dave Carnes. He had spent 23 years in the Marines. Now he's an accountant, but he's watching this take place on television, and he determined he had to do something about it. And so he went to his boss, and he said, I'm not going to be in the rest of the day. Then he went to the barber shop, and he got a high and tight military cut. Then he went home, and he took off his suit, and he put on his military fatigues. He figured they would let him into the ground zero with those fatigues. And then he drove 120 miles per hour from Connecticut to Manhattan. And when he got there, he found another Marine. And they began to patrol the area looking for survivors. About an hour in, they heard some tapping on some pipes and some yelling. It was... Will and John. And after nine hours of suffering underneath that rubble, they were saved. All because a Marine traded in his suit for a pair of rescue fatigues and entered in the chaos of ground zero. Now that is a a faint picture of an infinitely more glorious event where the Son of God, Christ Jesus the Lord, took off His royal robes and put on the rescue fatigues of human flesh and entered in the chaos of a sin-cursed world to save those of us who were buried underneath the rubble of human sin. That's what we celebrate in Advent season. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. And it's what this text today is all about. It's a very famous story. We've sung it in children's Sunday school classes. But there's nothing cute about this story. This story tells us in a a photo um, picture form of why Jesus Christ came to earth, why he came uh, to die. Well, notice with me in verse 1 of this chapter, 
in the previous passage, he, he is neared Jericho and he's healed this blind man that we know his name is Mar, uh, Barnabas. And here it says in chapter 19, verse 1, he entered Jericho and was passing through. You know, with the exception of the following parable, uh, this is the last recorded event in Jesus' ministry before he enters Jerusalem. Now, we know when he enters Jerusalem, it's going to be Sunday, and he's going to die on Friday. And so this perhaps may be on Friday, just a week out from the cross. This is the actual, the last actually recorded event in his ministry before he comes into Jerusalem. And remember, he began his journey to Jerusalem back in chapter 9, verse 51, where it says he set his face towards Jerusalem. And so, in a very real sense, this particular narrative is a punctuation mark uh, for the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It kind of summarizes what the gospel of Luke is all about, which is the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the king in the salvation of sinners. And that's why in verse 1 it says he's only passing through. He entered Jericho and was passing through. We learned in chapter 13, verse 33, that he had to die in Jerusalem. Remember, for many centuries, the the sacrifices had been offered in Jerusalem. The sheep had been offered. The lambs had been offered in Jerusalem that pointed to the one who would come, who would die for sin once for all. That's why he had to die in Jerusalem. But as will become clear, as Jesus passes through any place, uh, new creation happens. Wherever Jesus goes, he fixes the broken things. He ushers in the new creation. Notice with me in verse 2. It says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Chief tax collector. We've already seen throughout Luke that... uh, the Romans imposed these, these customs, these tolls, and these taxes on their subjects in Palestine. And so what they would do is they would auction the rights to tax the people. And the one who had the highest bid would have the opportunity to be the tax farmer. And so what these people would do is they would take these privileges given to them by Rome, and then they would find subordinates to go out and do their dirty work. And so they would tax the people for everything. And they would tax them for more than what Rome required. That's how they made their profits. It was extortion. But it was legalized extortion. And here the text says he's the chief tax collector. It's the only place in the Bible that the language of chief tax collector is used. So we don't really fully know what that means. Except perhaps he is the... uh, You know, the big cheese of tax collectors. Uh, He is the one who's perhaps in charge of a large area. In fact, Jericho was one of three centers where people paid their taxes. Capernaum and Jerusalem were the other two places. But you know, in light of um, the universal hatred of tax collectors, and let me just tell you, they deserve to be hated. Uh, R. Kent Hughes, here's what he said of uh, this particular man being the chief tax collector. He was the kingpin 
of the Jericho tax cartel. All right? And had the scruples of a modern day crack dealer. That's the way people would have perceived the tax collectors. And he's the chief. And yet, when you study the gospel of Luke, every time we read about tax collectors, they're seen in a favorable light. Remember, Jesus called a tax collector to be one of his 12. Levi, that we call Matthew. The last time we saw a tax collector, we saw it in a parable. Jesus talks about this religious Pharisee who thanks God that he's not like these other men, that he's a righteous man. God should be impressed with the effulgence of his glory. And yet here is this this tax collector who can't even look up and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, this man went justified before God. You know, this shows Jesus' heart for sinners. There was no one he was harder on than the self-righteous, than on the religious people. And Luke is intent to show us the transforming grace of Christ for sinners as well. And perhaps it was Jesus' heart for sinners that makes sense of verse 3. Verse 3 says, This chief tax collector was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. We don't know why he's seeking to see who Jesus was. We can only speculate. Perhaps he'd heard about that parable. Perhaps he had seen or heard about the scandalous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps he knew that Jesus had a tax collector who was now a follower of him, a disciple. Or maybe he had come to the place of the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who had everything the world had to offer. This man is rich. The scripture says that. He was very rich. And he had come to the place where he recognized that it was all vanity of vanities. He was empty on the created order. So this man wants to see Jesus. But two obstacles stand in his way. The first obstacle is that the crowd is very large. The second obstacle is he is very small. He's a short man. You know, there's a connection here. And I believe it's intentional between uh, this man and blind Bartimaeus in the previous paragraph. Neither man could see Jesus, but for different reasons. Bartimaeus was blind. This man was short in the midst of a crowd. But I think the most important connection is that both were desperate. Both had come to the place of desperation. And in their desperate straits, they did what they had to do to see Jesus. Bartimaeus, he cried shamelessly. And this man does something just as shamelessly as Bartimaeus. Look in verse 4. So he ran on ahead. Now, if you were with us during our 
little short series on the prodigal son, we saw that adult men did not run in public in this first century world. It was shameful for adult men to run in public. And you remember in that story, the father comes running to the prodigal when he comes home. Well, this man is running in public. Keep in mind, if we're to receive the kingdom of God, we must receive it like a child. Didn't we see that in chapter 18? This man is acting like a boy. He's acting like a little boy at the circus. He is running to see Jesus. Not only that, notice what he does. You all know what he did. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. He climbs a tree. In other words, Zacchaeus is acting completely out of character. Why? Because he wants to see Jesus. He wants to see who Jesus is. In other words, the word had spread. And and for whatever reason, perhaps he had heard about the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this compelling grace was why Zacchaeus was acting out of character. I mean, think about it. You have this man, adult man, a wealthy man up a tree. You know, when Jesus begins to enter into someone's life, it often happens that that person begins to act out of character. You have no interest in the Word of God. The Word of God is dry to you. And it's complicated to you. And so instead of taking the initiative to learn what God has to say to fallen men. You just close it. And you turn on things and read things and do things more interesting to you. But when Jesus begins to enter into your life and he begins to knock on that door, you begin to act out of character. All of a sudden you have a new hunger, a new thirst for the word of God. And perhaps some of you are here today, and the fact that you're here is out of character. The strangest thing to you this morning in this service is that you are in a church service. Or perhaps the strangest thing to you is you're actually interested in the preaching of the Word of God. You are acting out of character. Maybe it's because Jesus is coming near. That's what's happening with this man. And for those of us who are believers, keep in mind. If we had been living in that day, um, not one single one of us would have expected that this man, this chief tax collector, would have been interested in Jesus. He would have been the last person on earth we would ever thought would have been interested in Jesus. And and Zacchaeus reminds us that some of those people that are secretly interested in knowing who Jesus is are the last people on earth that we thought would ever be interested in Jesus. If only we would engage them 
If only we would invite them to church. If only we would share the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ with them. We may see that Jesus has been at work in their hearts prior to you engaging them. This man is acting out of character. Notice in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. It must have stunned Zacchaeus that he knew his name. You know, it reminds me of the story. I read this to the kids last night when he came uh, to Nathaniel in John chapter 1 and knew who Nathaniel was. Nathaniel says, surely you must be the son of God. And, and I can envision as I read this that Jesus must have had a slight smile on his face. He's looking up in a tree. It's not every day that you see a, an IRS agent up a tree. <laughs> it had to be a comical scene. But most importantly here, Zacchaeus thought he was the one seeking Jesus. When actually, Jesus was seeking him. We see that in verse 10. Okay? Which we'll come to in a moment. By nature, sinners do not seek God. Romans 3 says, There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. Paul could not be any clearer in Scripture. The seeker in the Bible is God. When Adam and Eve sinned against God... They did not go looking for him. They hid from him. God was the one who sought Adam and Eve in their sin and clothed them in the sacrificed animals to cover them, to make atonement so that he could reestablish relationship and fellowship with them. And Jesus has a divine appointment with this man. And I love this language. He doesn't say, would it be convenient for you if I could stay at your house? He says, I must stay at your house today. Isn't that beautiful language? Last night, Nate says, that sounds kind of mean. Or Seth said, that sounds kind of mean. Not when you're at a place of desperation and mercy and grace incarnate has invaded your broken world. He says, I must stay at your house today. This is a conversion taking place before our very eyes. Jesus is entering into this man's life. This is the king of the world entering and subduing this center, the sinner to himself. Jesus doesn't come to make salvation possible. Jesus comes to make salvation actual. He is the Savior. And He is saying, I must stay at your house today. He is seeking Zacchaeus. And He is going to capture him. Notice with me in verse 6. So He hurried down... And came down and received 
him joyfully. You know, there's a time for curiosity. Every one of us is at that stage at some point. We're not born Christians. We're not born saved. So at some point in your life, you had to come to a place where you were curious about the person of Jesus. You were curious about the claims of Jesus. You were curious about the work of Jesus. You were sitting in the tree, so to speak. But there comes a time when you must come down off that tree and close with Christ. When you must embrace him in in living and active faith. As Zacchaeus does here. Notice it says that he did so joyfully. He received him joyfully. That's a strong theme in Luke. In fact, that word in some form or another is used over 20 times in the gospel of Luke. One of the first times, and it's a passage we always celebrate at Christmas, is when the angels are singing to the shepherds. And they say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. By nature, we are joyless, okay? Because we are sinners living in a sin-cursed and broken world. That's why we're so dependent on circumstances to make us happy, to make us fulfilled, Because we're joyless by nature. Joy is a work and fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. Joy comes to us in spite of our circumstances. It's a work of God. And this man is responding in joy to Jesus. He he has come to the place where Jesus is fixing the brokenness in his life. Zacchaeus has become the guest in his own home, in other words. Jesus is now the master of Zacchaeus. And there's a joy because Jesus is the purpose for which we were created. Until you understand that, you will not have joy. You will not have everlasting joy. You will not have everlasting pleasure, the kind the psalmist speaks of. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is the purpose for creation. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And now Zacchaeus has found his purpose for his very life. His joy in the agent of creation. Well, notice in verse 7. All is not well, though. And when they saw it. Who's they? The self-righteous, the religious. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Now, that word grumbled is only found one other place in the Bible. It's in Luke chapter 15. Okay? And so that's intentional. You remember Luke chapter 15? The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so, in a sense, Luke is connecting these two events. They are grumbling because he is receiving sinners. In other words, what did Jesus do when they grumbled in chapter 15? He gave them three parables. One about the lost coin, one about the lost sheep, and one about the lost son. 
Zacchaeus and those like him, sinners in need of the mercy of Jesus, are the lost coin. They are the lost sheep. They are the lost son. And what these people failed to understand is that salvation is only for the sinner. In fact, all the way back in chapter 5, a very similar event when Jesus saves Levi. And Levi throws a party with all his tax collector friends. And in chapter 5, verse 30, it says, The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, he's being sarcastic because in the end, there are none righteous. But until you come to the place where you recognize you are a broken sinner, deserving of the wrath and the judgment of God, you will never close with Christ. You will never flee to Him in living and active and repentant faith. And that's why they were uh, so upset. Well, in verse 8, it says, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord... The half of my goods I give to the poor. This is dealing with the sin of omission. We have a responsibility to use our gifts, our finances in a kingdom way. And that means in sense giving to the poor. Giving to mission. uh, Giving to church ministry. So he's dealing with the sin of omission here. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. There he is dealing with the sin of commission, where he actually has defrauded people. You know, when we are saved and when our sins are forgiven, when our hearts are changed, it always goes public. It shows. What is Zacchaeus saying by his actions? Simply this. What I love most in life has changed. Okay, I used to love money. I used to love power more than anything else in life. That has changed. A new affection more powerful than my love for money has taken hold. It has replaced my old affection. That's what he's saying by his actions. And it shows first by how he addresses Jesus. Notice how he says, he says, Behold, Lord... To be a Christian is to come to Jesus Christ as Lord. It's to bow the knee and to say, my life is now given to you. To use as you please my time, my finances, my talents. Everything is now yours. You are Lord, which is a synonymous uh, term to king. You are king of my life. And yet we also realize there are people who will confess him as Lord that he will say in the end, depart from me, I never knew you. In fact, in chapter 6, he's what he said. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? There are people who will die having confessed Jesus as Lord, but he is not really Lord of their life. They may have prayed the sinner's prayer. They may have walked the aisle. They may have watched Billy Graham every time he had a crusade. 
but they never bowed the knee to Jesus. And so this man confesses Jesus as Lord, but we see this in HD by his repentance. Notice he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Now, in that day, to give 20% to the poor would have been seen as generous. This man is giving 50%. It's not out of obligation. It's response to mercy. And then he says, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Restitution was two times what you had taken. He is going to return fourfold what he has retaken. Uh, This man is repenting before our very eyes. What is repentance? It's a work of God's grace whereby the sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with uh, grief and hatred over his sin turn from it unto God with full endeavor and purpose after new obedience. That's repentance. And we're seeing it in HD with this man. And there were sins of omission he had to repent of. There were sins of commission that he had to repent of. But what's interesting is that Jesus never said a word about money. Jesus often speaks about money, but money is not mentioned here. But it's the first expression of Zacchaeus's newfound repentance. You know, it's amazing what falls from the hands that has fallen from the heart. And this man's coveting and greed and love for money has fallen from his heart. And now it's fallen from his hands. Now, let's be careful here. He is not giving us an entrance requirement into the kingdom. That's not what he's doing here. But it is a model of the kind of response of someone who has been gripped... By grace. As grace comes down, gratitude goes up and generosity flows out. That's always the order. When grace comes down, gratitude goes up and generosity flows out. And it's not just the generosity of our money. It's generosity of our time. How you use your time for the sake of the kingdom. Do you use your time for the sake of the kingdom? Are you just a a bench warmer? Are you actively involved in the great commission life of the church? Or is this just a place you go out of custom? It's also how you use your talents, your gifts. It's how you love in response to the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what makes his repentance so glorious is that he's rich. In other words, he's like you and me. I'm not rich. The poorest among us are in the top 5% wealthiest of people in the world. You are wealthier than 95% of the world. And you're wealthier than most people in all of recorded history. The poorest among you have conveniences at your disposal that kings did not have in previous centuries. So don't deceive yourself. You are rich. And here Jesus is saving a rich man. Now, why is that important? 
just days before, a rich young ruler came to him. And he was rich. And he wanted to know how to be saved. And Jesus is dealing with him at the, at the place of his idolatry. He says, give all that you have and sell it and give it to the poor. Because he knew this man loved money more than he loved God. And this man refused to do that because he was rich. And Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is wealthy to enter the kingdom. Not because wealth is sinful. It's because those who are wealthy find their security in it. They find their identity in it. They love it more than they love God. As evidenced by their giving patterns. Then Jesus gives some of the most hopeful words in all the scripture. He says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And here we have in living color a camel going through the eye of a needle. Jesus is saving a rich person. Only God can save rich people. Only God can save 21st century Americans. Well, notice in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. I don't want to rehearse this too long, but we've learned in Genesis that Salvation is going to be found through the line of Abraham. God told Abraham in Genesis 12, Through your seed, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we learned that Galatians 3.16 tells us that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. And so if we're to be saved, it's going to be through Abraham. It's going to be through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ our Lord. As Paul says in Galatians 3.9, Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He has received the blessing promised to Abraham and those who are engrafted to the line, the tree of Abraham. And that same mercy is available to every sinner. Look with me in verse 10 as we close. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now keep in mind this theme verse, and this is the theme verse of Luke. Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's why He came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. That's why we celebrate Advent season. Not to adore some cute little baby lying in a manger. We celebrate Advent season because the Son of Man came to seek and to save sinners like us. And you cannot read this without the context of Luke 23 and 24. Because Luke 23 and 24 tell us why and how he came to save sinners. Through the cross and the resurrection. And in just a matter of days, maybe seven days. It's hard to say. I doubt this is going on on the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday. So perhaps it's Friday before Good Friday. In just a matter of days, he would be dying on a cross. He would be humiliated, he would be flogged, and he would be crushed to death for sinners. And if we had known Zacchaeus, if we had been there, we would have thought, 
There's no way this man can change. You know people like that? I know people like that. There's no way this person could change. This person is without any hope. And we would be correct. Except the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the hope of this passage. If Jesus can save not just a tax collector. He can save the chief tax collector. Then he is able to save any lost sinner. Even after everything you've done to rebel and turn away against God. No one in here is a helpless and hopeless case. Zacchaeus is the poster child for a hope. You see what Luke is doing? He's writing to Theophilus. And by the Spirit, he is writing to us. And he is saying, can you see in Jesus, Theophilus? Can you see in Jesus, Fisherville, what I see in Jesus? He is the seeking Savior. Yes, what Dave Carnes did was heroic. It changed two men's lives for many decades to come, didn't it? He went into all that chaos and mess and he pulled those two men out. And now these men are living and thriving as citizens. But what Jesus did goes beyond heroic. It was world. It was history. Indeed, it was eternity changing. You see, the punchline of Luke, and we find it here, is that we are to look at the way Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's what he still does. He is the seeking Savior. He's the saving Savior. And that's what we celebrate in Advent season. And it's also what we celebrate at the 